This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are people who get caught up in the news and you just can't get them out of your head. Like Vanessa Bennett. She was the sole survivor of a 1984 murder in Aurora. An attacker bludgeoned her mother, father, and sister to death. During the attack, Vanessa, who was then three years old, suffered a fractured skull. I have a metal plate in my forehead. Um, I had frontal, I guess, frontal lobe issues. My jaw pretty much is shattered. I have a shattered pelvis. But I guess um, I healed pretty well. That is Vanessa Bennett today, speaking with Nine News investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn about her life now. She lives in Arizona. Vaughn met her there, and he's in our studio after investigators announced a big break in this cold case. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. More about these developments in a moment, but to a key question, and that's what does Vanessa Bennett recall of the attack? Here's what she told you. I don't remember anything at all, honestly. People ask me all the time if I remember things, but I don't. Did that surprise you? Um, It didn't surprise me just because I had been talking to her for a while uh, before we sat down and did this interview last week. And so I had already talked to her about that over the phone uh, several weeks ago. Um, She was so young then. She was so young. Incredibly traumatic. She suffered just awful head injuries. I mean, just think about bashing somebody's head in with a hammer, and that's what she survived. What was Vanessa Bennett's childhood like after the murders? Um, It was difficult. She, um, you know, she was raised by her grandmother. She had all kinds of physical issues, as as she detailed in that bite you've already played. Um, Brain injury, shattered jaw, shattered pelvis. Um, She needed plastic surgery. She was paralyzed on one side for a time. She needed braces on her legs to learn to walk again. She still has issues with feeling in her hands, particularly on one side because of the brain injuries. Um, And she, um, you know, she, she had the emotional scars of growing up without her sister and her mom and dad and not really understanding that. And she dealt with the cruelty of other children. Um, what do you mean? Um, you know, she detailed for us how she was picked on by other kids. She was taunted about the the fact that her parents and her sister had been murdered and and teased about the hammer man. And, um, you know, so I, I think she had a very difficult time. My goodness. She I, was, I can't imagine being teased for that. I know. I know. And yet, you know, we see kids tease each other for things that don't make sense to us. And, and so I, yeah. I, I found it completely believable. The Hammerman, that's sort of how this case became to be known. Uh, Bennett is 38 now, I believe, and she told you that she thinks about what happened all the time. A lot of my life, I, I, had, um, I was angry because why did I have to be the only one that lived? Why did my parents die? They were great people. And then I turned out being a junkie, you know? And I always thought, you know, they were good people. You know, what did they do wrong? They didn't do anything. You know, they were young. They were in their, like, uh, mid-20s. And if you heard what she slips in there, I turned out to be a junkie. So she turned to drugs. Yeah, she detailed for us uh, beginning to use drugs in her late teenage years and and spending, you know, a decade um, uh, using, you know, heroin and, and other things, both uh, both to escape, she said, and also because she's just generally in a great deal of physical pain. Um, among the many issues that she has, she has a terrible time sleeping. 
Um, sometimes can go days on end without sleeping. Um, she's got lingering pain, you know, like I said, from a lot of the physical injuries. She has also been at times homeless. Yeah, for about the past uh, six months, since February, she's basically been living on the streets. Um, when we met with her last week, she had just um, been able to rent a room in someone's home, and she was hoping to make that um, last for a while. But before that, uh, into early August, she was sleeping under a bridge. I imagine, like like myself, like many people, you wondered for a long time, what happened to that little girl? I did. I was in college when this happened here in Denver, and, uh, you know, I think I, I had uh, interest in criminal justice stories even then. And, uh, you know, I remember vividly when this happened and many times over the years wondering what happened and and what the family has always said is, you know, she's had a difficult life, but nobody had ever really tried to actually chronicle what she'd been through. Yeah, what did that mean? The case indeed was all over the news back in 1984, and it turns out it wasn't just the Bennett family that was preyed on. Tell us briefly about the series of attacks. Yeah, uh, over a 12-day period uh, in January 1984, there were four attacks that are believed to be all linked to the same person. First, a couple was attacked with a hammer in their bed in Aurora. Um, They both suffered, um, you know, a concussion, a skull fracture, but not debilitating, long-term debilitating injuries. They chased off the attacker. Six days later, a flight attendant was attacked in her home in Aurora, brutally beaten, they think, with a hammer and sexually assaulted. And then um, later that same day, a woman in Lakewood named Patricia Louise Smith was attacked in her condominium, beaten to death with a hammer and sexually assaulted. And then six days after that was the Bennett attack. Was the Bennett attack. What stands out to you most about Vanessa Bennett? First of all, I was struck by her um, just brutal honesty about what she's dealt with. She didn't sugarcoat anything. She was completely upfront about her legal issues, her drug abuse issues. Um, And I was also struck that um, beneath all of that, beneath the injuries, I sense that there's a real – a real genuine kind person there and she's trying very hard to do to do the right thing she's being treated for her her drug abuse problem now she's hoping to finish a degree in psychology she would like to be a drug counselor oh. um and and so i was struck by that and just struck by the just the sadness of it all and the fact, and in fact, I talked in the story that I did last week about the fact that, you know, January 16th, 1984 reverberates in her life every single day. Every day. And physically, so as you say, with uh, her level of pain. Well, we said that uh, there's been a break in the case. 34 years later, an inmate in Nevada has been charged in the Bennett family murders and the murder of Patricia Smith of Lakewood. How did the evidence point to this man after all these decades? Clear back in 2001, the uh, Arapahoe County and Aurora investigators submitted a bunch of evidence in the Bennett case to CBI, and they got a really good DNA profile that of someone they believe to be the killer. CBI, the Colorado Bureau, Bureau of Investigation. Investigation. Yeah. Some years later, Lakewood investigators did the same thing and got a, a, an, I don't know if it was identical, but a very similar profile, close en- enough enough matching markers that they believe it was the same person in the Patricia Louise Smith case. Genetically speaking, that yeah. there was a link. 
clear back in 2002, the Arapahoe County District Attorney at the time, Jim Peters, got an arrest warrant for that DNA profile, even though they didn't know who it belonged to. It's a John Doe warrant. A John Doe warrant, yeah. yeah. And um, what happened is Nevada just recently began retroactively testing people who've been in the prison system a long time. So this inmate there, Alex Christopher Ewing, had uh, was required to give a DNA sample, I think, in May. That went through the testing process, was uploaded into the national database in July, where the profiles from these two Colorado cases have been resting for years, and those are constantly checked against each other, the sort of the known database of offenders and the unknown database of profiles from crime scenes, and there was a hit. And so... What it, What is this inmate serving time for right now? He's in prison now for breaking into a home in Henderson, Nevada in August 1984 and savagely beating a couple with an axe handle. Something very similar very to the similar. Colorado crimes. Uh, indeed, the Aurora and Lakewood Police Departments held a news conference Friday about this break in the case. And District Attorney George Brockler was also there. The Bennett home in Aurora is in his district. And he explained, indeed, that this connection could have been made earlier but wasn't. Back in 2013, Nevada decided to join almost every other state in the country. And by the way, there's still a handful that don't do this. And say, we are going to authorize the DNA testing of those people who have been incarcerated or are going to be incarcerated into prison. But despite the fact that that law was passed in 2013, the Nevada Department of Corrections resisted testing their population of uh, inmates until they received an order, uh, an opinion from the Nevada Attorney General. And that opinion made it clear that they should go back and and, and test retroactively all the other current inmates. And that is how we discovered this individual right here. George Brockler, also a candidate for Colorado Attorney General. And of course, this gets into all sorts of privacy issues, I imagine. What happens next in this case, Kevin Vaughn? Um, Chris, uh, Alex Christopher Ewing's got to be extradited to Colorado. Um, they're expecting the formal filing of criminal charges as soon as this week. Right now, what they have are arrest warrants alleging a whole bunch of different charges against him. And then, uh, assuming all that happens, there'll there'll be the the long process where you know we might end up in a courtroom in a year, year and a half, two years, something like that. Very quickly, what was Vanessa's reaction to the news? She was glad that a suspect had been named, but she said that, you know, in some ways it won't materially change her life. Kevin Vaughn, investigative reporter at Nine News. He managed to connect with Vanessa Bennett, the sole survivor of a 1984 Aurora attack, which killed her mother, father, and sister. As we said, there's been a big break in that case. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It sounds like something from a sci-fi novel, space mining. But this semester, the Colorado School of Mines launches the world's first master's and Ph.D. programs in space resources. The center's director, Angel Abud Madrid, is here. Welcome to the program. Hello, Ryan. How are you? You envision mining asteroids, maybe mining on the moon. Just give us a sense of what's out there to harness that you're most interested in. That's like that's a great question because a week from now, my course, which uh, has the name Space Resources Seminar, we actually call it 
what's up in space resources. Uh-huh. And I think it's important to, uh, to know what's up there because people think about space mining, you know, metals and, and minerals and water. But there's other things up there that are actually intangible about solar energy to power your spacecraft or chemical processes, about uh, vacuum or, or microgravity to process uh, new, new materials. So these are all the resources. There's even human-made resources in space, you know, all the debris and junk that we have thrown out for 50 years that can be recycled, and those are all resources uh, in space. Wait, how would you mine microgravity if, that's, if you consider that a resource? No, you don't actually mine it. See, right. that, that's yeah. why we call it resources. Uh-huh. What uh, what you do is that uh, there are certain processes that will benefit from not having the influence of gravity like we have here on Earth. Okay. So you can manufacture more uh, purest uh, type of products that you can use in space or even at some point uh, bring them uh, to Earth. There's actually a company doing that. Uh, 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 that type of, 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 of work uh, on, on using 3D printing in the space station to produce this type of material. Fascinating. And that benefits from the low gravity environment. Correct. But let's get to the metals because I think that's what people often think of. Mm-hmm. Are there metals in space that you're interested in that we as humans are interested in? Lots of it. <laughs> to the point that there's... Uh, uh, so many metals there that uh, we will never run out of them in billions of years. Uh, and those mostly come from, from asteroids. Uh, asteroids are those uh, rocks that are flowing around in the, in the uh, solar system that have highly concentrated metals like the, what, the ones we use here on Earth, uh, iron, nickel, the platinum group metals. Uh, there's plenty of that. For an asteroid, for example, the size of the Colorado School of Mines, you have more platinum that has ever been mined and will ever be mined on Earth. But uh, the interest, yes, you may think this is great. We can bring it to Earth. But that's not exactly what we're going after at first. That will be probably way in the future. Indeed, you are interested in something that is perhaps a bit less sexy, which is water. Yes, H2O. Now, we have lots of water here. Why would you need it in space? Because water... Uh, think of it as the oil of space. The oil if, of space. If you can break out water into hydrogen and oxygen, you have the highest and most energetic propellant known to humans. And so that uh, provides the energy for rockets to move around in the solar system so you don't have to bring it from Earth. And that is the whole point. What we're looking is for resources that you don't have to carry from Earth. We have been doing that for 60 years. And as you know from our exploring our, our planet, we do not carry everything with us everywhere, everywhere we go. We use resources where, where we find them. When you have to carry everything you need into space, it's really expensive, for one, because you've got to rocket that into space. That's payload. That's right. It's extremely energy intensive. Look at a rocket. 85% of that is fuel just to send anything into space. It, it costs $4,000 a kilogram to put things in low Earth orbit. Multiply that by 10 if you want to have humans, and it's an extremely costly operation. And so if you could have space gas stations, if you will, you don't have to carry your own fuel. That is the whole point. If you can now have, you can refuel in space, that will allow you to have larger rocket, larger payloads. You can go further. You can actually stay longer at uh, the lunar surface, even make it to Mars, which is right now quite a, a difficult task. So I understand the School of Mines had its first conference on space resources in 1999, and you've been working on the subject since then. Last year, you announced these PhD and master's programs, which begin next week. Why is now the right time? 
now is the right time because we've been working on research on this field for 20 years. And we started with groups of 20 people that were interested in this, and mostly within NASA. But in the last six to eight years, we have seen the interest coming not just from the United States, but from many countries, Russia, China, South Korea, Japan, India, the European Space Agency. So students from abroad may be a part of this program. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. This will be international. And it's not just governments. It's, it's, it's aerospace companies. It's uh, commercial companies, mining companies, and all a, a bunch of new uh, small startups that are working on this. So the interest is coming internationally, it's coming from commerce, and we felt this was the, the right time to do it. Will there be jobs in space resources once these people graduate? Are these young people, by the way, fresh out of high school, or are these professionals seeking to advance their education? Most of the people that have signed up for our courses are actually professionals. They're oh. already working for space agencies, for aerospace companies. So they they already feel that this is an area they have to get educated so they can incorporate the systems in what they're doing. Although there is also so uh, several young people right out of college that are quite interested in doing something like this. Would these potentially be astronauts or are these folks who sit behind a desk? No, these are people that may uh, just uh, design and put together the systems to make it happen. Okay. In the process, they will lower the cost of transportation. That will give you more access to people to space. And, but who knows? Some, uh, some may become astronauts at some point. We're talking to the director of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. That's on Hell Abud, Madrid. The school is launching the world's first degree programs for space mining and resources next week. Okay, back to the question of, of this uh, bold new frontier. Who owns these resources? So, you know, there might be a fight someday over water, but I could imagine uh, nickel, for instance, being very valuable. Is that China's? Is that the United States? Is it the global communities? Have you given thought to, who, to whom this belongs? That's, that's a great uh, point, and that's something that is also moving along with all the technical and scientific work. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 clearly says that no, the, the no celestial body is owned by a country. But uh, other than that, there's not very clear language in terms of can you not necessarily own the body, but extract the resource. And so that was brought up again about six years ago, and there's a group at The Hague that is looking at uh, building a legal framework of of who owns it, how you can define, who can make the claims, how far away operations have to be from one another so that you can uh, do this type of of work. So there's definitely a, a, uh, a group that is composed of many, many countries, not just the spacefaring countries, but uh, all sorts of countries looking at how the legal uh, issues are going to be solved. But unanswered questions for sure in that realm. I imagine that some of the allure for students is the chance to be in on the ground floor of a budding industry. How different would mining be in outer space from mining here on Earth? Do some of the practices translate or do we need new space bulldozers. That's what makes this area so exciting. Uh, Students that are already working on uh, geology or geophysics of mining, they're trying to adapt the systems that we have developed for centuries here on Earth and try to apply that on different gravity environments, different pressure, different temperatures. But there's also uh, other objects like asteroids that do not have practically no gravity, that you have to come up with totally new systems on how to extract, for example, the water out of them that are not generally used here on Earth. I guess to wrap up, there are any number of people who would see the mining that has happened on Earth and say, sure, it has generated resources for us, but it's also left places pretty dirty. 
polluted. Uh, and, and those same folks might say there's lots of energy right here on Earth. Why go down this path and do to space what we have done to some places on Earth? Again, the use of resources in space will be for space operations, not for Earth. And we're very conscious of that. And we make it very clear that uh, we're taking a very broad look at this multidisciplinary field and looking at uh, doing it responsibly and in a sustainable way. Because we have learned through centers here on Earth that uh, that cannot happen. Obviously, we don't have uh, humans in, in space, but uh, you have to consider what countries are going to be working on this, what, how are you going to affect the resources of the moon or the asteroids or uh, that, uh, that you have to consider before going into something like this. Thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure, Ryan, and thank you for uh, letting your listeners know of our totally new activity that will for now on matter for Colorado. That will matter for Colorado. I see how you worked the show's name into your... You're welcome. Thank you. That's Dr. Angel Abud-Madrid. He directs the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. The school indeed launches the world's first degree programs for space resources next week. And this is Colorado Matters from CPRs. Pueblo's fire department has a problem. It's a problem a lot of departments have. Firefighters often don't look like the communities they serve. Here is Pueblo's fire chief, Sean Shelton. Diversity to me is very important, you know, across the board. And especially in the fire service, we really have a diversity problem, you know, nationally, really, in the fire service. About half of Pueblo's population is Hispanic, but Shelton says that's not true of his staff. And his department has never employed a black firefighter. Apparently, that's not for lack of trying. Over the last eight years, Chief Shelton has been trying to remove application barriers and improve outreach. He says that's how he met a retired African-American firefighter who is living in Pueblo. He's offered to help try and mentor black youth and make sure that they know they're welcome. The man's name is Eugene Polk. And he joins us to talk about the challenges he faced and why it's important to have a diverse fire force. Hi, Eugene. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Grateful for your time. Why do you think fire departments struggle with diversity? Well, number one, when it comes to the uh, African-American, the black men and women uh, don't realize they can go to a fire station and ask any question if they're interested and where I come from out of Pueblo, the, the main problem has been that there are no black firefighters for a black man or woman to go in and talk to. And they, they want to talk to them to find out what they can expect when they make application and, and if they make the test and be, you know, be hired in, in through the academy during that time. And that, that seems to be the major problem. I think what I hear you saying is that a lot of people become firefighters because maybe they were interested as kids and they walk in and ask a bunch of questions. And that's not happening, perhaps, for African-American youth. Correct. Like I say, they don't have a role model. They don't see that that situation where it was different with me when I uh, left the government side of firefighting. I was on vacation, me and my wife and her children I saw black firefighters at fire stations in the spring. So what I did is we we stopped in and I talked to them and I got a perspective of what, what was expected when you make application and you start training. This is Colorado Springs where I think you wound up 
of being a firefighter. I want to clarify that you you did work as a firefighter in Pueblo back in the 70s, but not for the city. You were with the federal government. And I understand that you were the only African-American on that force. What, what was that like? Uh, it, it, it wasn't a bad situation because I started out um, – I wanted to be in law enforcement. In fact, I was a deputy sheriff for two years up in Leadville. And uh, we decided to move back to Pueblo, and so I took a position out at the uh, Pueblo Test Center. It's known as the Transportation Test Track now. And uh, as a guard at the main gate, I got to meet all the firefighters and got interested, and they offered me a position. They said, would you like to be a firefighter, entry level? And I said, yeah, that's great. I said, you know, that's something I think I'd be interested. And from there, I hit the ground running, became a firefighter. Was there um, anything you faced that indicated to you your colleagues were just not used to having an African-American firefighter in the ranks? Uh, Yes, not at first, but, you know, I promoted quickly, um, went from a firefighter within three months to a driver engineer, and then within a year I became captain. Wow. At the time I became captain, it was a crew of five per shift. I had three gentlemen that felt that I shouldn't be a captain, and the main reason, one was from New York, and he felt that, you know, I'm more qualified than you, and he'd only been on the force a year. And I told him, I said, well, you know, I said, we didn't go by affirmative action. I said, we went by my work habits, and I kept my nose in the book on certain vehicles that we had. And I said, that's why I was promoted. In fact, those three guys got fired the first shift I was there because they disobeyed an order to stay at the fire station. They decided uh, to go out in the brush trucks. And the test center is like 99 miles, square miles. And they decided to go out. Well, I knew that night we were having a surprise burn with the chief and the assistant chief. And I kept telling them to come back to quarters and just be there. Uh, I think I was called every name in the book. And they didn't realize the chief and the assistant chief were already on the site. They came in through the back way, through the lock gate that they had keys to, and everything was being recorded because everything that went on out there was always recorded 24 hours a day. Oh. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at that time, they told them report back to the station. And when they got back to the station, chief said, guess what? You three people are fired at this point. I imagine it was heartening that your superior stood by you through that experience. Yes, I was I was really sad to see the three go, but, you know, they were disobeying an order to come back. And uh, just the things that they said, you know, um, and we get back to one thing. One of them even made threats to my wife. He called my wife before he left and said, you better watch yourself and your kids. And the funny thing was I called my best friend and he, he handled the situation for me. <laughs> so back to Pueblo, where Chief Shelton has said that the – The skin color of his force doesn't accurately reflect the community there. What do you think would most change this? Well, just getting um, some of the ideas I came up with, I said you should need to possibly have some community meetings, which they're having at fire stations and at the library, and um, career fairs, which they're going to be doing at Fort Carson here in Colorado Springs, and uh, I'm going to be in contact with both colleges in Pueblo to find out about their career days and give that information back to the chief and the assistant chief and the captain that's involved in recruiting. And I think that's going to make a big difference. Uh, they've made uh, 
reference to the NAACP, which they've been in contact with them. They've been to Juneteenth, which they went to that. And then they've also um, – we have four black ministers in Pueblo, which they've had meetings with them. So everything is going in the right direction at this point. Do you think that cost ever gets in the way? Uh, the cost of education, the cost of certification, are those barriers? Well, you know, some of the restrictions that are put on um, as far as education is not bad. As long as you're 19 years old and, of course, if you can read and write and, you know, that that's the biggest thing. And just common knowledge when it comes to the testing and then, you know, you have an oral word where they asked you, just general questions to see where your mind is and then there's a psychological test and all those things play a part. Long as you have your mind where it should be during all that testing, you'll be okay. What have you heard from young people that you talk to about firefighting? Well, they, they asked me how was it for me as far as getting on, what obstacles that I have and, uh, that was pretty much it. How was I treated? I told him you know, I was treated fairly. I got along with everybody. And, you know, I, I said I studied hard to get where I was at. You know, I had uh, almost 30 years on. I retired early due to an injury, so they retired me. And, you know, it, it's amazing. There are five firefighters from Pueblo, but they don't work in Pueblo. And one is my son, of course. And the other three, they all went to school together. They're friends. And plus, I know all their parents very good. So, you know, that wasn't a problem there. But, you know, I always have kids coming up now asking me and they want to test. And they always ask me about Coverall Springs. And I go, why don't you test for Pueblo? And they said, well, there's nobody in the stations we can talk to. So, you know, that's what we're hoping. We get a couple of applicants in. And I've I've made it clear the first time they they get a black man or woman in, I will be at their graduation. I just want to say, to speak to the issues in firefighting in general, uh, in April of this year, the city of Aurora paid out almost half a million dollars to four minority firefighters who say they were discriminated against. And in 2009, seven of the 10 African-American firefighters uh, left the Aurora Firefighter Union because they said diversity on the force was not a priority. And I I suppose that speaks to the fact that uh, you have the obstacle of hiring uh, people of color, but also of retaining them, which is perhaps a conversation for another time. Eugene, thanks for sharing your experience with us. All right, and you have a nice day. And quickly before I go, about the... Eugene, uh, I'm, I'm actually so oh, sorry. We're, we're out of okay. time. He's, Not a problem. He's a retired firefighter trying to diversify Pueblo's department. And I'll say that Pueblo just started accepting new applications yesterday. We'll continue for the next six weeks. It's been a rough season for hail and wildfire, but it's been a relatively mild year for tornadoes, with about 700 twisters reported in the U.S. through early August. There are usually more than a thousand. Numbers are below average in Colorado as well. Let's focus now on people obsessed with tornadoes, storm chasers, and one in particular, a Coloradan named Tim Samaras. He was legendary, and he's the subject of The Man Who Caught the Storm. Let's listen back to my conversation from earlier this year with the book's author, Brantley Hargrove. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Tim had an important first 
in storm chasing. Maybe this is what you mean by the man who caught the storm. Uh, What was it? Take us to the scene. In uh, June of 2003, uh, in South Dakota, near Manchester, Tim became the first human ever to gather data from the core of a violent tornado. This was something atmospheric scientists had been trying and failing to do for decades. So his measurement uh, near Manchester sent shockwaves to the atmospheric science community. How exactly did he do that? What did it require of him? Tim had sort of an unusual set of skills. Um, He worked for a research and defense contractor, and so he had a lot of experience with uh, research-grade electronics, uh, measuring blast waves, uh, military ordnance. And so he took some of this know-how, some of this technological wizardry, and built a hardened probe stuffed to the gills with pressure, temperature, and humidity sensors packed into a shell of uh, quarter-inch-thick mild steel that was designed specifically to resist drag and lift forces. It was actually designed, it was based on an earlier project that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear explosion. And Tim figured if it can stand up to a nuclear explosion, surely it can handle a plane's twister as well. And he, he called so, this thing the turtle because it, it was a shell. It was sort of encased. That's correct. And uh, in 2003, he was racing this tornado down a dirt road. It was incredibly dangerous. They had uh, debris fluttering down around them. He hopped out of his minivan, dropped the turtle on the ground and drove away with the wind at his heels. And there it lay in the path of a tornado, and the instruments got into the core. In fact, it, where he deployed it on the, uh, the gravel road there, his instrument didn't move a single inch, even as a, a farmhouse just right next to it was uh, shredded and cast into an adjacent cornfield. Oh, my goodness. Now, people who don't chase storms got to know Tim during his time on the Discovery Channel's Storm Chasers. In this clip, he's outrunning a massive tornado while utility poles snap and explode around his team. Punch it. Punch it. He's going to start taking down some poles. Let's go. Run it, run it, run it. Right here, right here. How did he come to chase tornadoes? I mean, he, he didn't have like a Ph.D. in meteorology or anything, right? That's correct. Uh, he'd been fascinated by tornadoes since he was a little boy. It started with the Wizard of Oz. Uh, he was always fascinated whenever storms blew through. I mean, if he was in class, he'd be looking up at the sky through the window. And so, you know, whenever he was a young man, he'd drive out to Red Rocks, uh, which you know, I'm sure most of your listeners know about. And he'd, uh-huh. he'd post up at this, uh, this makeout spot and just watch the, uh, the storms wash over him. Um, you know, and then he then he got a job, and you know he didn't really have as much time for storms. But after the the birth of uh, his, his third child, Paul, Tim saw a documentary on PBS. It was a Nova documentary about uh, you know these scientists chasing these twisters down, and he was captivated by it, these these storm chasers. It was just it wasn't something he thought was was even possible. He didn't know people did this kind of thing, mm. and so he went out gradually, you know, just going out and chasing around, you know, Aurora. Or you know just places around eastern Colorado, and eventually his 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 passion deepened. You know he took a Skywarn course, 
uh, which is basically just this program where the National Weather Service trains uh, spotters to go out and sort of be their eyes and ears on the ground. So he took this course and became a spotter for the National Weather Service, you know, going out there and giving them ground truth um, because radar can often tell us uh, that there's a tornadic storm brewing, but it doesn't tell us whether there's a tornado on the ground. And so Tim would be out there reporting to them uh, via ham radio whether there was an actual tornado in progress. Uh, and so that was how he got his start, just, you know, sort of gradually wading in deeper and deeper into this world until he was, you know, spending weeks at a time on the road, driving out to Texas and Oklahoma, uh, you know, where, where the real monster tornadoes are found. In a vehicle that is just like filled with all of these kind of MacGyvered pieces of technology to track storms. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it, 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 there was a direct correlation to uh, his, his passion for storm chasing and the amount of gadgetry <laughs> that he would install in his vehicle. Uh, it was just various minivans that he would uh, – he, he'd cut holes into the dash to fit a, you know, a VGA monitor and he'd have a 486 PC, which if you're of a certain age, you know what I'm talking about, you know, big tower PC that he would use to uh, – uh, display uh, a Delorme roadmap because uh, you know roadmap is an essential tool for storm chasers. You got to know what kind of roads you're dealing with. He loved to cobble together instruments out of just you know stuff he could scavenge. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and author Brantley Hargrove is my guest. His new book is called "The Man Who Caught the Storm: The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras." Samaras was well-known in the chaser world as being very safe. And during his time on the series Storm Chasers, you know, he was often seen as a calming force, different from the more gung-ho chasers that are often showcased in, in that program. Uh, tell us about his mindset when he was chasing tornadoes. Well, Tim had a no-nonsense mindset. He, you know, he wasn't... Uh like some of his co-stars who are, you know, <laughs> incredibly dramatic and screaming. And, uh, you know, it, Tim keeps it pretty calm. And he has a mission. Uh, and his mission is to deploy his instruments. And, you know, by this point, he has various instruments. He's got the, uh, you know, his tried and true turtle probe. He's got a, a media probe, which has a bunch of cameras inside it to take footage from inside tornadoes. And later on, he also developed a, a tower probe, which is the most advanced in situ probe ever devised. And so he, he was a man with a mission out there. He was very serious. Um, so, you know, you, I think he would play to the camera occasionally. You know, he'd make some fairly dramatic pronouncements. But uh, he was definitely one of the more, more sober heads on uh, Discovery Channel's Storm Chasers. In this book, you weave some tornado history in. And I, I was just fascinated to read that before the 1950s, the word tornado was considered taboo by the Weather Service. It wasn't allowed to be uttered in weather forecasts. Well, yeah, back then, I mean, look, even to this day, there's still a lot of things we don't understand about tornadoes. But imagine back then before radar or any of this stuff, uh, we just had no – we had no basis for how to predict them. Um, and, and the National Weather Service – before that, it was the, the Weather Bureau and then it was the Army Signal Service that was actually in charge of, of weather. And they just had no confidence that they could predict tornadoes uh, with any kind of accuracy. And so they were sort of just threw up their hands. They were like, look, there's not really a whole lot we can do except uh, – gather epidemiological particulars in their aftermath, you know, how many people were killed, mm -hmm. uh, how many buildings destroyed. Um, and you're right. It wasn't until the 50s that we actually started trying to predict them uh, and, and when the first uh, actual operational tornado warnings and forecasts were first disseminated. 
In May 2013, the largest tornado ever recorded touched down in El Reno, Oklahoma. Uh, At its peak, it was a massive 2.6 miles wide. Uh, It was also one of the fastest. It had a massive storm core, but also had these smaller sub-vortices spinning around it, some swirling as fast as 175 miles per hour. Oklahoma meteorologist Gary Englund followed the El Reno storm as it developed. Okay, it's turned a little to the south and a little more to the southeast. So we'll put a different uh, loop, a different uh, projection on this. But El Reno continued the tornado precautions. Union City continued the tornado precautions. Uh, mentioned Mustang over to Will Rogers World Airport. Take immediate tornado precautions. Below ground is best. Below ground is Take best. Take us into the field that day. Uh, storm chasers from around the country had descended on this El Reno storm. That's right. And... Just from that clip you just played, uh, you can hear Gary England struggling to pin down this tornado's trajectory. And this was something that Tim, Carl, and Paul, as they were working to intercept this tornado, struggled with as well. Uh, The tornado was going by points uh, south, southeast, east. Most tornadoes maintain a fairly straight-on trajectory of northeast. Hmm. This tornado was all over the place, and so it presented a huge challenge. In addition to that, it was rain-wrapped, and there's nothing more dangerous than the tornado you can't see. Uh, And so I think for much of the chase, they couldn't see what they were chasing. They just knew that it was to to the south of them somewhere, and they were attempting to get ahead of it, maybe drop down a little south if need be, and deploy, and then get out of the way. And then at one point, they realized that this thing is, is, is drifting further away from them. And they need to drive south to keep it within range. Uh, And as they do that, the the tornado shifts uh, more to the east. And at one point during the chase, Tim, Carl, and Paul actually penetrate the tornado's debris core. There's a piece of debris that actually rings off of the frame of their vehicle. Tim immediately recognizes that this is incredibly dangerous and that they they need to flee north immediately. And so at the next uh, north road, they, they head that way and then they, they, they put a little distance between themselves and the tornado. Then they go east and all the while, they're having trouble keeping track of this thing. Tell us how that day ended for them. Well, as they were traveling east down this dirt road south of El Reno, the road was called Reuter, they can't see the tornado, but they know it's to their south. And there's a point where the rain begins to intensify Uh, the winds pick up. At one point, the winds are uh, well in excess of 100 miles per hour. And they're they're driving in a Chevy Cobalt. Uh, It's a four-cylinder sedan. And there are three grown men in it and and three steel probes. And they're struggling. They're struggling to keep pace. They're struggling with uh, the road conditions. Uh, The road's incredibly muddy. Uh, I would imagine it was hard hard to keep in a straight line. Uh, from what we've been able to uh, understand about their forward speed, they were probably moving at that point no more than 20 or 30 miles per hour. Uh, these are awful, awful conditions. Uh, and at one point, I'm not sure exactly what Tim sees, uh, but he realizes that they are, to quote him, in a very bad spot. And at some point, uh, the, the DSLR camera that had been recording throughout most of this chase, uh, reaches the limit of its uh, storage disk and goes silent. And not long after that, probably a few minutes, they are overtaken by the uh, sort of outer 
circulation of the tornado, the subvortex of the tornado, is this tornado within the larger tornado, uh, has been looping around uh, the tornado's periphery, the mother tornado's periphery. And it picked them up into its core flow, carried their vehicles south of the road, uh, then east, then to the northeast, uh, and after about 600 yards or so, deposited their vehicle into a canola field. The image of what was left over is, is pretty grisly. Their car was in very bad shape, as you can imagine, uh, after that, at that sort of travel. Um, it was, you know, crushed, nearly unrecognizable. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a very, very bad ride. And these were the first known storm chaser deaths. As impossible as it is to believe, yes, these were the first storm chasers ever killed by a tornado. Usually you're more likely to uh, encounter danger on the drive to the tornado, not so much from the tornado itself. And, you know, I think part of what contributed that was just the nature of Tim's mission. Um, it was dangerous. He had to get in front of tornadoes to, to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. And um, that put him in some, in some pretty tricky spots. Um, and I think it just eventually his luck ran out. You know, he came up against a tornado – it was unlike anything he'd ever seen. It upended everything he thought he knew. Um, and so this was something that I, I think he knew was possible. I think he was worried more and more uh, that tornado chasers were getting too close. But it ended up being him and his son and Carl. Yeah, father and son. There's something particularly painful about that. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking for his family, um, uh, for his, his wife, Kathy, in particular. I mean, if you can imagine, she lost her son and her husband in a single moment. That's just uh, a kind of trauma that I can't fathom. How did you piece together so many of the conversations, the dialogue in this book as these storm chasers are on the road? I mean, obviously, you didn't have them to interview what was your source material to be able to bring people so vividly into these places on the plains? I would say my primary source material was Tim's own chase footage. Uh, that's the thing about storm chasers. They record uh, most of what they do, most of their chases. And for Tim, that was doubly so because he was a trying to establish a scientific record for his probe intercepts. And so I had hours of Tim's chase footage where I could you know, practically be sitting in the, in the car next to him seeing what he sees, hearing what he says. So that was immensely helpful in, in piecing some of these scenes together. What is Tim Samaras's legacy? His legacy, I would say, is his data has been immensely useful to uh, vortex modelers, people who use computers to model idealized tornadoes. Before they had a blank space in the equation. They had no data for the lowest level of the tornado, what they call the boundary layer. Hmm. And so Tim filled that in. And you look at any numerical models uh, of tornadoes, uh, published papers about those, you're going to see Tim Samaras cited uh, to this day. For engineers, Tim gave them actual wind speeds to know what to build against. You know, before... All they had to go off of was... Oh, you, you was, mean like build homes, build buildings, build barns, things that might withstand storms. Exactly, exactly. You know, before all they had was uh, estimates from damage surveys. You know, you go look at a house. Okay, what would it take to bring this house down? So it's a range. It's an estimate. 
Tim gave them pretty precise figures. Hmm. The third thing I would say his legacy uh, provided was something a little harder to pin down. You know, before Tim got this this groundbreaking measurement, you know, researchers had largely given up on that. Tim showed that it was possible. And so now other researchers are uh, going in his footsteps. Uh, you know, researchers like uh, Joshua Werman in uh, Boulder, Colorado, the founder of the Center for Severe Weather Research. Uh, he has uh, crews who are deploying pods. Uh, to this day, they're still going out there and trying to get ground-level data from tornadoes. And they've gotten really close, closer than anybody except Tim. Well, I want to end with Tim Samaras in his own words, talking about why storm chasing was his passion. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. Out here watching the the great clouds, the great storms, you never know exactly what you're going to find. Brantley, thanks for being with us. It was my pleasure. Journalist Brantley Hargrove wrote The Man Who Caught the Storm, the life of legendary tornado chaser Tim Samaras. Samaras died May 31st, 2013, along with his son Paul and longtime chasing partner Carl Young. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, thanks for spending time with us.